Welcome to the Bugs, Blood, and Bones podcast, where today we're going to explore a different sort of bug. This one's still creepy crawly, doesn't quite have six legs or eight legs, but it can kill you in horrible, painful ways. In part one of my interview with Chris von Schaefevi, a computational epidemiologist, we're going to talk about Ebola, measles, a bit about the history of these diseases, and explore a bit about where we could be going next. So click that subscribe button so you can come on back next week and take a listen to the problem with Ebola. Welcome, thank you. Uh, today we have Chris uh, Chaffervoy. He is an, a computational epidemiologist doing all of the things with all of the diseases and numbers. Uh, thank you, Chris, for being here. Uh, this is the Bugs, Blood, and Bones podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. Why don't, you, uh, why don't we start basics? Uh, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and how you got to where you are? Um, funny question. I actually, uh, I actually got to where we are. Um, through a couple of false starts, uh, at some point uh, a long, long time ago, I actually uh, used to be a lawyer, but uh, I'm more better now, so uh, <laughs> that, that, that's uh, that's fine. Um, and I've moved on from that, and I've uh, always been messing around with computers a lot longer than I have been interested in just about anything else. So my first computer was a Compaq 486, uh, which uh, sort of dates me. As an 80s kid who got into it in his ni- uh, in the 90s. Well, I was always interested in data and statistics and all that. Um, there are several people in my family who are either in that end of the realm or in medicine, both human and veterinary. So uh, I eventually uh, found myself in a strange career that has a little bit of both. Computational epidemiology is very, it's a very new field. Uh, it relies on a lot of things that are quite recent uh, and that we have not really had around for a long time. Uh, but at the same time, it ties into a tradition of epidemiology and public health research that goes back about 150 years or so. Epidemiologists uh, like to say uh, the birth of epidemiology was uh, the 1854 cholera outbreak in um, London and uh, John Snow, the Game of Thrones character, who ended up um, figuring out, uh, based on a map, that uh, a particular pump, like one of these um, hand-operated water pumps, uh, was the main source uh, that spread the contagion. And uh, since then, it's been ups and downs for epidemiology and then computers happened and then somebody came up with the wild idea of putting the two together and if you were into data statistics and all that in the I would say um, late noughties early trade tens uh, that was a great time to get interested in both of these things because um, that is around the time when Statistical modeling and uh, especially the more complex and more interesting kind of uh, statistical science and data science uh, around uh, health and disease came to be. 
And that was, um, there are just times that are really good to get started with something. And it was a great time to get started with it. So when I had my fill of defending mainly guilty people, I decided that it's time to probably do something more interesting. Um, I sort of initially worked on regular healthcare data, mass healthcare data for insurers and all that. And uh, the epidemiology part came a little later. And that was a bit of a, a bit of an interesting situation because there's a, there is a lot that you have to learn uh, on the job. It's, it's, it's not a field that fits neatly into to any other uh, field, really. So uh, you have to be all things to all men uh, and women. Uh, you've got to be art virologist. You have to be part um, uh, mathematician. You have to be part, actually, you have to be a decent programmer. Uh, you have to understand enough computational theory to know how to create fast models. Uh, you have to be good at uh, understanding the computer the human complexities uh, of the situation. There's quite a bit of anthropology involved, especially especially recently. It's a hot topic currently in epidemiology, how uh, it can be useful if used with uh, anthropological insights. Eventually, I started doing a range of work for... I, I worked for... I had my first job in this field, actually, for the MRC, the Medical Research Council, uh, which is a, which is the, the Healthcare Research Council in Britain, and worked on a, a disease monitoring uh, project about heart disease and uh, heart failure in particular. I eventually moved on and went through a couple of uh, startups, a couple of larger companies. I was then head of data science and epidemiology for a large FMCG company, one of these we-produce-everything kind of companies uh, that also had a pharmaceuticals arm, small one, but still a fairly important one. And so I did a lot of work for them. I then did a little tour to work for a car manufacturer actually they um it, it, it's kind of funny how i ended up there or why i ended up there or what uh, epidemiology has to do with it but it turns out that uh, modeling diseases and modeling uh, certain other problems are and solutions to it are actually very similar then finally i ended up uh, in my current position which is uh, I, i'm essentially a uh, contractor for a number of companies and uh, a couple of governments dealing with uh, computational epidemiology, public health work, uh, advising, creating impact studies, and of course looking into primarily my research is around nasty things. So I specialize in viral hemorrhagic fevers, uh, and they are universally known as some of the most horrific things that can happen to you. That is uh, always a, an interesting conversation Start a party. <laughs> what do you do? Well, uh, well, I, I uh, research diseases that liquefy your body and who blood out of your backside. So uh, that, that, that's kind of why my wife said, uh, uh, from now on, just stick to I work with computers. <laughs> anyway, so that's the um, that's the short lowdown on who I am and what I do. Well, luckily, my my listeners are happy to hear about all the gruesome ways that we can bleed out of every orifice. Oh, yay. 
So enjoy. How would the needs? It's of... not often that an opportunity comes uh, comes along. I have to I, I have to say <laughs> it's uh, most audiences are uh, reasonably squeamish, and when I say reasonably squeamish, I I I I, I, I do mean it's reasonable for them to be squeamish. <laughs> Well, it's a good thing I'm not reasonable. How would the 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 work of say the car company or the small arm of that pharmaceutical versus uh, a, a government? How would would how what kind of similarities and differences would you see in that kind of work? Ultimately, um, there are two perspectives on this. One is the one I call the statistical perspective, and that's the one that statisticians like to say, which is that every data set is the same, and you know if. Uh, if if, uh, if if something works on uh, one thing, then it will work on every other thing, and we just have tools and methods, and you can use it on everything. Not sure, I'm entirely convinced by that. I think a better explanation is there are some pretty significant differences, uh, but ultimately, when you're in this field, you you can't ever lose track of the fact that you are, are ultimately in a public health related field and that means that uh, whether you work for a private party whether you work for a government whether you work for a, an international organization like the WHO or you do you, you do what you do because of your primary obligation to keep the public safe and healthy it might mean ensuring that you correctly predict which parts of a country might be more stricken by a particular disease and so that the, the pharmaceutical manufacturer can ensure that uh, those parts of the country are well supplied and well stocked with uh, relevant medications. It might mean it might mean uh, that we deal with something quite uh, closer to the um, closer to the fire such as um, using data to find the original source of a particular infection. Uh, it's uh, a process uh, called contact tracing, which uh, is universally reviled in field epidemiology. <laughs> so I don't envy the people who have to do it. Um, it's dangerous. Uh, it can very well get you killed, and um, and it kind of, um, it's kind of boring. And people are sometimes going to lie to you. So uh, on, on the whole, there is not much to comment and contact tracing as an exercise. But at the same time, the data that we uh, get from that, it, it's priceless, and it can it, it, it can lead us to a better understanding of uh, just what's going on, just what's going on in the world, and that's going, just what's going on uh, with a particular disease. So a typical example for why and when contact tracing was really important uh, is recent West African Ebola outbreak uh, started around 2013, in December 2013. It was traced back uh, to a single child, a young child called Emil, and uh, he lived in a little town called Miliand in a province called Bekidu, which I'm probably mispronouncing, uh, in the country of Guinea. And after tracing, um, uh, after essentially uh, tracing the whole thing back, uh, to him, it emerged. Uh, it, it emerged that there, the fields that they next to a um, an area where they had did a lot of bats have, of course, been implicated as being the host of uh, of um, Ebola and a lot of other very horrific diseases. I'm I'm not a huge fan of um, bats on the whole. Uh, I'm a 
bit known as uh, a bad folk and occasionally made statements about uh, you know, I wouldn't mind a massive uh, mass extinction of them. Uh, these were, of course, meant as a joke. Uh, they're very important. Uh, but um, I but, feel similarly uh, about but, mosquitoes. Yes, yeah, I'm with you on mosquitoes. I'm with you on mosquitoes as well. If, uh, if there's any way to uh, supplement their, uh, or rather replace the uh, the role they play in the biological and the food chain, uh, be, be just fine. But uh, it turned out, uh, it, it turned out that uh, he actually um, he actually contra- uh, contracted the disease. This little boy contracted the disease uh, mm-hmm. from uh, free-tailed bats. Uh, they live in they roost on trees and uh, basically from t- from that some pretty straightforward prevention advice was derived such as you know after around dark don't hang around uh, trees in fields because there are bats and they might spread nasty things so so uh, so, so there's a straight chain uh, from what we do from the work we do to both to, to all kinds of public health interventions, um, and you know that's a wide range. That starts with information and talking to people, to mm-hmm. more drastic measures such as uh, quarantines, and the rest hasn't really been explored yet. Uh, what would we do if we couldn't stop a particular disease, or what are the final options? That's uh, fortunately only been explored in fiction and theory, and we kind of hope that's where it will stay. Yes. Yes, we can we can keep those overly dramatized Hollywood movies as the only example of that. Yes, uh, there's uh, there's a fervent debate uh, as to what what to do when a particular um, like for instance would lethal force be appropriate or authorized uh, particular people. Uh, uh, infected with a particularly uh, virulent pathogen, where to try to break through a quarantine. Uh, that's um, that, that's always a constant debate, uh, and with the public health community coming from different angles. Some people are medical doctors, and uh, they, they are primarily approaching it from do no harm. Or mm-hmm. uh, there are more in the disaster preparedness community that sometimes you have to make hard choices. I don't really have a fixed position on this. I I just hope that we'll never have to make them. So you were you were mentioning the uh, the example of the most recent Ebola outbreak uh, that re- resulted in some people, and I know I think there was two here in the states, and I can't remember how many in Europe that had traveled from the area back home uh, that had brought it with them. Uh, or is uh, there were, in contact. There were there were pre there were pretty few cases in Europe. There were uh, there was one case in Italy, uh, one case in Spain, and one in the UK. Uh, so on the whole, Europe uh, got off pretty easily. That's from a total of uh, twenty eight thousand, twenty eight and a half thousand cases. It's fortunately, okay. a tiny fraction and all survived. Um, in the U.S., yeah. there were four patients, and one did not make it. My, my memory or my recollection from that was that a lot of it came down to a lack of education and awareness among the healthcare practitioners. Uh, they didn't know like that universal precautions was not enough in this instance. I think you mean Fam uh, uh, and Miss Vincent. Uh, they were the two uh, what we call organic cases in 
the U.S. organic cousin uh, cases that were not uh, brought. Like, um, like there were a number of cases who uh, have contractable uh, in West Africa, but were flown to the U.S. Uh, mm. Know about those? Uh, but these two cases, uh, they were both um, uh, both young nurses in their mid 20s in that case i think think it's uh, i think it's correct that there's been a lot of debate especially um, actually up to at the legal level so uh you might know that uh, the patient who did not, not survive mr duncan he passed away in october 2014 uh his family happened to happened to texas uh, presbyterian hospital where he was being treated mm-hmm. uh and there was a uh d- 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 there was a settlement um uh, it, it, family claimed that uh, mr duncan had not received proper care and he had not received timely care well uh the truth is that somebody turns up at uh, your ER with abdominal pain, nausea, lasted bad headache and dizziness, and fever of 100. You can think of a lot of things. This was also, notably, this was in 2014. So mm-hmm. uh, this was still early days. Uh, it wasn't wasn't routine to ask whether they've been to West Africa because uh, the Ebola outbreak has really been um, going for less than a year. You know, you're presenting with symptoms that are a bad flu, and yes. you're in Texas. You don't think? Yes, and and, and doctors are yeah, doctors are taught to think you know uh, when they hear who primarily consider horses rather than zebras. Um, and in this case, um, uh, in this case, unfortunately, Mr. Duncan was a zebra rather than a horse. Unfortunately, he was given paracetamol and uh, some antibiotics. Uh, that was about uh, four, uh, four days after his initial presentation at the ER. He was taken back, and uh, and at that point, uh, he volunteered information that he had uh, he had recently come from Liberia, which was one of the affected countries at the time, and, um, and of course he was uh, was tested uh, for Ebola at that point, and the uh, CDC's isolation protocols were initiated, but it was um, all too late uh, to to prevent both secondary spread and unfortunately his demise. Uh, what's um, what's in a sense fortunate is that uh, Ebola has relatively limited transmission. It's not airborne. Uh, it, it requires uh, contact bodily fluids. That's why healthcare workers are at a, a, such an immense risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the first cases were healthcare workers. It, uh, in fact, the reference strain of uh, Ebola that uh, most of us uh, do our research on is uh, called the Moyinga strain. And the la- uh, lady from whom uh, that strain was isolated uh, was actually was actually Moyinga Niseka, who died in the 1976 Sair Ebola outbreak. Uh, so she herself contracted as a healthcare workers as well as uh, famously uh, Kent Brantley, say physician with uh, with um, Samaritan's Purse, a uh, leaf organization, and one of uh, his colleagues both uh, contracted uh, Ebola. So the point I'm trying to make is uh, if it if it were if it had been any other infection that's um, more more likely to spread uh, through airborne or other routes of transmission, uh, this could have been a devastating event. Imagine a mm-hmm. packed uh, ER 
uh, waiting room. Uh, a lot of people, all of whom are some form of sick. All in all, I think we got we got off lightly. We had looked into this most recent Ebola outbreak that we're talking about, and I remember the predictions that the different models came up with were far worse than it ended up being. Is that a mix of just the difficulty of modeling such a disease, or is that just we just nipped it in the bud right at the right moment? I think there are three reasons I would mention. Predictions are... Predictions make sense at the moment they're being made. Once, once the once the predictions being made is being acted upon, and that that creates a new reality, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's a li- it's a little bit like the measurement problem that just by doing the prediction you change things, right. and uh, if the prediction is any good, uh, there's a good chance that that will then reduce the outcome. That's one thing. The second thing is we're trying to stay away from alarmism, but there is a tendency in the public health field to to err on the side of caution, I think mm-hmm. is the uh, best way to put it, uh, to, to make sure that uh, um, yeah, to, to, to make sure that uh, when we do model something, we do not understate risk. The costs of that have been seen in history and have been seen to be immense. Uh, the, uh, the one of the reasons why the Spanish flu was so devastating was that it was in the immediate aftermath uh, or, or the tail end of World War One, and government secrecy meant that no country wanted to be seen as weak. And for that reason, details about what's going on and how to protect yourself were not published and that actually endangered wider public. We, we try not to repeat that mistake again. The third, the third reason has a little bit more to do with, not just with Ebola, but with the wider file of every day. Uh, so that includes Ebola, it includes um, Marburg virus, and it, it includes something called QA virus, which is, uh, again, it's a virus that uh, breeds in bats. Uh, we don't know much about QA virus. Uh, we know a lot more about Marburg and uh, about Ebola. And what we know about it is it's um, it's a little bit, and people like people like me who work a lot with this stuff and who uh, you know it's almost like a, a household household member. Uh, <laughs> we, we talk more about uh, we talk more about Ebola than we, than other people talk about uh, their kids. We don't <laughs> have any children, by the way, so so uh, that, that that would be an issue. Uh, so. So I think once we have children, there will be a lot more focus on that. But um, there aren't many households where you have uh, level three masks and uh, Tyvek suits and everything in a lower closet in case there's a major. Wait a minute. Not everyone has those? Apparently not everyone has those. Uh, we Weird. Various little outbreak kits and all that. So um, I was born in the, de- uh, in the year Chernobyl blew up. And uh, ever after that, uh, we had Russian blue and iodine um, tablets in the house in case, you know, something blows up again. <laughs> you know, once, bur- once burnt makes you slightly aware of these things. But what, what I meant to say about uh, about Father Day in general is that what we, we, we do not really understand why they have the dynamic that they have. 
they have this very peculiar dynamic of, I tend to liken it to, to the Wraiths from uh, Stargate Atlantis. For those who aren't hopeless nerds, the idea here is Ebola comes out to feed and then it burns out. For some reason, it just stops. Yep, we do manage to keep the num- uh, numbers of uh, dead down, uh, dead and infected down by quite a lot through infection control measures. But it does perplex everybody who models it how it seems to peter out on its own somehow. Um, As if, you know, it got bored of humanity and it goes into hiding again and it comes back. There are primarily two kinds of diseases. There are anthroponotic diseases which can only be given from one human to another. And it's easy to eradicate. Not easy, but it's possible to eradicate an anthroponotic disease. We've seen that with smallpox, we've seen that with polio. These diseases have to be passed from a human to a human. That's why uh, smallpox is eradicated, that's why polio is on the verge of being eradicated. Then there are zoonotic diseases. The problem there is that the disease can go back into what is called a reservoir host. A reservoir host is an animal that can carry this uh, disease, but not get sick, and most importantly, not die from it. So it can indefinitely survive in hiding until it's ready to come out and hit humans again. And for some bizarre reason, bats are prolific reservoir hosts. There's actually a very recent paper that uh, hypothesizes that it has to do with particular features of the bat's immune system that that benefits them, the ability to fly further and longer. The theory itself behind that is fairly complex, and I I don't know if... um, I wouldn't say that that, that it's backed by a lot of unanimous evidence but for some reason for some reason it's bats and to a smaller extent mosquitoes who tend to be prolific reservoir hosts there are a lot of other viruses that are spread by bats uh, one is something called the nipah and um, nipah encephalitis virus and then there are uh, the the various viruses, there's the Batlissa virus, which is endemic in um, Australia and Queensland. So all in all, we don't. Uh, what makes it hard to model is we don't know when and why the we we don't know when and why or what factor makes a population no longer sustainable for Ebola to cause Ebola virus disease. It's partly the fact that transmission is not easy, uh, so it takes blood to blood or other bodily fluid transmission. What we don't know about Ebola is why and when it stops so suddenly sometimes. It's always surprising, it's always quite perplexing to all of us uh, when one one day to another it, it seems to have lost its momentum. Now, partly that may be because the relative route of transmission of Ebola is it's relatively onerous. It's, it's, it, it, compared to something like measles, which uh, is really easy to... It, it's, it's not easy to catch Ebola. The fact that most of the people who uh, can, 
catch it in any outbreak tend to be healthcare workers or people who are physically handling the bodies. And I, uh, I'm going to get to that uh, and the role of funerary practices in a second. Uh, in epidemiology, especially the computational part, we have uh, a concept called the R0 or the basic uh, reproductive number. It's called R naught because letter R is used in something else elsewhere, and it's it's kind of um, a bit of an awkward naming. This basically means one patient is likely to, if say that the R naught is two, then that means that a patient is likely to cause two other cases. Each of those are going to cause two other cases. Each of those are going to cause two other cases, and so on and so forth. So that, uh, you know, until either the R0 is reduced or there's no more uh, people to infect or uh, everybody's immune or everybody's dead. Basically, those are the outcomes. And just to give a, a sort of comparison, so smallpox, which is an airborne infection, has an R0 of about 6. HIV, depending on depending on how whether the individual knows and how they exercise um, particular practices that might reduce the risk of transmission. R0 is around 3 three to 4. SARS, the R0 at the last outbreak was, of SARS coronavirus was 4. The flu, it's about 2.5. Now, Ebola, it's about barely, barely above 1.5. It's around 1.5 to 2. So what this means is each case produces at best two other cases. So spread is relative, gonna be a lot slower. Of course, measles is the king of R0, by the way. It, uh, it's an airborne virus, it's got an R0 of 18. So that's, that, that, that's just absolutely incredible. And anybody who thinks that measles is a harmless childhood disease is a moron, I'm happy to say that. Anybody who thinks that it's not worth vaccinating because it's just a harmless disease that uh, isn't going to hurt anybody doesn't know what they're talking about. Yes, we're both clear. Vaccinate your children. <laughs> yes, vaccinate your children. And Please do that. And yourselves and your pets and their pets. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so, so the idea is, is that Ebola is not a very transmissible disease. What we're, of course, when we assess the disease, we look at a couple of things. We look at how absolutely nasty it is. Uh, there are some diseases that are just that are not very frequent, but absolutely horrific. I mentioned Nipah encephalitis a moment ago. It's very rare, but it's an absolutely horrifying disease. We look at how virulent it is. R0 is a good estimate of that. We look at whether we have anything to deal with it. And that's, I think, one of the reasons that uh, make Ebola such a scary monster. It's an ugly disease, and it's we've got nothing. Uh, we, 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 we do not have a working protocol that works for it all the time. There is there's a monoclonal antibody called ZMAP. There is not enough of it going around to treat even a small number of cases. There is currently, as far as I'm aware, there's currently none available. 
there's uh, sometimes blood plasma from people who have uh, survived Ebola is used because it has anti-Ebola antibodies. That has its own therapeutic risks. And there's an Ebola vaccine, RVSV ZBOV uh, vaccine, which is um, a recombinant vaccine against, basically it re-engineers a virus called VSV, vesicular stomatitis. It, it, it then expresses a glycoprotein, which is the shell of the Zaire Ebola virus, and that basically cr- uh, leads the body to create anti-Ebola antibodies. It's been used on an emergency basis, but uh, nobody knows how really efficient it was. Um, I happen to be friends with somebody who's been in the trials and who now knows that uh, she was actually in the treatment group rather than the placebo group and uh, found it a quite interesting and pleasant experience. Uh, She's fine, she wasn't infected with Ebola or anything, she just had to have the shots and she felt probably a little grotty about it for a couple of days but there's a a lot of um, there's a lot of hope that one day it might be uh, an efficient defense against it but until then we have we have these things and we have them and they're not going to go away. We can't make Ebola extinct the same way that we have managed to make smallpox theoretically extinct. I say theoretically extinct because I do not be- I, I do not believe that uh, like the theory is that there are only two reserved facilities where smallpox is being stored. I do not for a moment believe. That that's all the smallpox that's stored by governments in the world. Anyway, so that's the problem. That's the problem with Ebola. And that does it for part one of my interview with Chris about Ebola and all the other fun little ways that we can die. Check on back next week for part two. Got a topic you want to learn about? Hit us up on Facebook at Bugs Blood and Bones and let me know what you're interested in. As always, I'd like to thank the Underscore Orchestra for their great music. And remember, kids, keep calm and vaccinate. Thank you.